Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lineup with Dave Prodan. I'm Dave Prodan, and this is episode 18. So, the world has ground to an absolute halt because of COVID-19. And while this is a surfing podcast and the plans of our guests and our listeners and myself and this podcast have been disrupted, it's important to keep perspective because people are dying from this and they're being separated from their families and people are scared. Yesterday, the WSL canceled or postponed all of our events at all levels through the end of May and we're monitoring and discussing what happens after that. And that is disappointing for a lot of people. And we here at the lineup debated what we're going to do in terms of this podcast. To be candid, we still haven't figured it out. We had some awesome guests lined up over the coming weeks to align with the 2020 season kickoff, and we may still try to get them remotely, or we may try something completely different. We'll figure it out. One thing that we're agreed on is that these conversations are having an impact. We get messages from listeners every week talking about what the stories and insights of our guests mean to them, from speaking out about body image, to substance abuse, to depression, to overcoming tragedy, breaking boundaries, believing in yourself, forging your own path, accepting your humanity, and everything in between. I kind of think the lineup is doing its job when one of two things happen. Number one, listeners are exposed to very human people who occasionally do superhuman things. And number two, Surfing becomes a potential platform for widening someone's aperture of what's actually possible. When both things happen, we give ourselves a gold star and go out for ice cream. So we're going to keep doing these as long as we can. All that said, I don't think it would be right without also addressing a few things from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the World Health Organization on symptoms and behaviors that will have an impact on curbing this pandemic. First off, how to identify potential infection here are the symptoms from the CDC for COVID-19. They can include runny nose, sore throat, fever, cough, and shortness of breath. So very tricky during cold and flu and allergy season, but these are the symptoms and err on the side of caution here. So if you're not feeling well, please call your doctor. Now from the World Health Organization, here are the behaviors that everybody should be doing. Number one, wash your hands a lot. Number two, Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Number three, if you have to cough or sneeze, do it into your elbow. Number four, social distancing. Avoid gatherings of large groups. Number five, if you're not feeling well, get checked out as soon as possible. And number six, if you can work from home, please do. Not everyone can do that. And if you can, it's less about protecting you and more about curbing the spread and protecting those who can't. So yeah. Let's all do that as much as we can and get through this as fast as possible. Fortunately, for those of you hearing this right now, listening to podcasts is mostly a solitary activity. So tell your friends that listening to the lineup is not only feeding your misanthropic tendencies, but it's helping to save the world at the same time. Okay, I've talked a lot already, and this is part two of the Mick Fanning podcast. So let's get to it. Last week's episode for part one prompted amazing response. Thank you to everyone who shared it and sent us messages. Mick was strikingly candid and vocal about the trauma he's dealt with in his own life. And maybe some of those insights can help us all right now. And that bleeds into this week's episode where arguably the most hyped prospect in the history of surfing, and to note, one who completely over-delivered on that hype, breaks down his career amongst the world's best and provides thoughts on where the sport is at and where it's going. Please enjoy part two of the lineup's conversation with Mick Fanning. 
The good old clap, take one. That's right. How many of you knew what you wanted to be when you were seven years old? I did. I wanted to be world champion. Hey, is there honesty involved in this podcast? Can we be honest? We can shut your fucking lips. And then I'll just say, put them up once. It's got. He's like, you look too pretty on the wave. Get ugly. We can talk about DMT if you want. It's a boxing. You talked about some of your, your colleagues at the time, whether they're on the Rip Curl team or not, you know, Hedgie and Taj and Joel and Dean. And that kind of when you look back over the course of the arc of surf history and surf, competitive surf history, you guys are really foundational in changing things in a lot of ways from Australia, um, your generation. And you had almost immediate success on tour. Um, you know, you won the Rookie of the Year in 2002. I think you won the J-Bay event, your rookie year. Mm-hmm. It's not something you see a lot these days, not not from rookies and, and I mean, even the state of Australian surfing in a lot of ways. Yeah, the, the state of Australian surfing right then and there was incredible. Um, you know, I think, I think the year that I qualified, I think there was 10 Aussies that came on. Yeah. You know, just as rookies. And it was like, wow, we we got some force here and, and we were just like, we, you know, we would look up to the older guys and, you know, everyone would take in what they needed. And then, and then it was up to us to, you know, go about our own way. Um, but I, I truly believe that a lot of that success that we had was due to the, the junior series that we had in Australia, you know, you'd, you'd compete on the junior series until you're 21. And so you had a, you had that learning about yourself, but also learning how to travel and compete. And, um, before you had to get on the the main stage, then I, I feel like, I feel like it's changed a lot now because the junior series stops at 18. Right. And it's not as strong as what it was because kids aren't finding their feet. You know, you hit 18 and you're like, some kids aren't even fully grown yet. Yeah. You know, and you have a look at like someone like Kai Otten. I think he got through maybe one or two heats. I think he's, I think he's, um, money that he earned on this junior series was something like $300. But it wasn't until he, got off the junior series he started to blossom you know and and so i I sort of feel like maybe that's a big thing where we're stopping the kids learning and growing in that junior environment too young yeah um and they get onto the qs and like holy shit this is a whole different ball game again for sure i i I think that's I, i think you're dead on i know it's something that we talk about in the building a lot when that age changed and i had this kind of the same point like physically maturing is one thing but like mentally maturing and psychologically maturing that's a lot happens between 18 and 20 when it used to be 20 and you know a lot of these 18 year olds are being either encouraged or forced to kind of get lost in the wilderness on the qs and you just you're being thrown to the wolves in a lot of ways 100 percent and 
I hate to say it, but the kids can go and blame Gabe, <laughs> Philippe, and those kids because they were winning events at 17. You? Well, I was older. I, 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 Slight, slightly old. But yeah. you're, right, you're right, though, right? Yeah. Because surfing is it's a community obsessed with the cult of youth. And yeah. anytime there's like an 11-teen-year-old that is going to be, quote, unquote, the next Kelly Slater McFanning, the sponsors come knocking and the opportunities come knocking. And there's this convergence of energy and attention on these kids at so young. Mm -hmm. And so, A, a lot of other kids don't get opportunities, but as you said, it lowers the ceiling for when you have to perform, yeah. right? And then, you know, your Kai Ottens or your Mick Fannings kind of don't get to thrive because they're not physically or mentally ready to be on the world stage. No, for sure, for sure. Like even I got super close the year before I did qualify, but I didn't feel like I was ready. Yeah. You know, going to... You know, even thinking about going to a place like Chopu, I was terrified. I was like, I don't even know what's going on here. And and it was like, I was totally out of my league in, the, in that situation. Give it another year. Learn how to compete. Learn how to travel a little bit more in different cultures and stuff like that. I felt a lot more comfortable. Even when I first got on the world tour, though, I was like, if I didn't have guys like Hedgie, Miklob, Bowman and um, Parker, like if I didn't have those guys looking after me, I was shot duck. Yeah, you know, and um, yeah, you see it in kids today that they're meant to be the the next greatest thing, mm. um, and then they just get lost. You know, it's, it's it's sad to see. Like personally, I'd like to see it go back to twenty one. Yeah, I would too. Yeah. When you Should we start a movement? Hashtag it. <laughs> That's the only reason we're doing the podcast. Come on, kids. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, Pat O'Connell's very malleable. He'll listen to this and he's like, we're changing it. Mick said so. Yeah, hopefully. Did So when you qualified, when you when you qualified in 2002, did you, you mentioned that there you felt like there were some gaps in your surfing. So did you, did you think that like I'm a title contender in year one or did you think I've got some work to do? Oh, shit, no. No, I, I got on tour and... Um, yeah, I had gaps everywhere. You know, I, um, I used to, I used to look at the South Pacific leg, you know, the islands and I'm just like, well, here comes two last places. Make sure you make it up somewhere else. Um, my first four events on the world tour, I had four seventeenths, and I'm, and I'm, looking going all right well time to start doing the qs and you know i had huntington booked and then the euro leg booked and and i was doing crap on the qs too i was like oh god here we go like i'm, I'm gonna be one of those guys that has to do both tours and you know struggle for for years and and then there was just the turning point at j-bay that was that was it yeah um still I didn't feel I was strong enough to be a world title contender. It wasn't. It wasn't until 2000, 2006 that I actually thought I was a contender. Um, you know, and I remember Andy was doing an interview, and um, you know, the the guy asked him, you know, what about these other contenders like, you know, Joel and Mick and Taj, and and he torched us. He he's just like. <laughs> Show me their consistency. I'm not even worried about those guys. And it was just like, I had people coming up to me going, 
are you okay with this? I'm like, well, it's true, isn't it? You know, it's not like it was, if he didn't say that, then I don't think I would have worked on my consistency. And how, how did you? Like, I mean, specifically, how did you approach some of these gaps? Um, yeah, look, it was just, you just had to go and experience it. Um, you know, in 2007, I, I sat at Chopu for a month. Yeah. You know, surfed every single day. And I, I was surfing with guys that, you know, a lot of the Hawaiian guys, a lot of um, Tahitian guys, and and just was learning a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, was I taken off on the biggest waves? No, but I I could see which ones were good. I could see which ones were yeah. not good. Um, and just learning the different types of, um, I guess, different angles and the swirls and and all this. And it was that was a huge a huge thing in my you know, in my future was, okay, if you're not comfortable somewhere, just go early. Yeah. Learn. You know, Adriano did it. I was going to bring him up because it, there, there is sort of, as, as you said, like there are people that qualify for the tour and they feel like they're fully formed and they try to get by on whatever level they are when they, they get there. I think it's happening less and less so. But Adriano for me was one that seemed super humble because he was like the original air guy, like won the world juniors on the strength of air reverses. And then... I think he worked really hard once he got to the tour on his rail game. Mm-hmm. And then he worked really hard as almost did the same thing you did where he, he went and stayed with Jamie O'Brien at pipe for six weeks. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it, it's like anything. The, the only way you're going to get better in these situations is hard work. Uh, uh, Adriana. Yeah. He came on like every other kid, just brash. And, and, you know, it was just like, man you got a lot to learn yeah and he was great he was don't get me wrong he was incredible but yeah he he realized that he had holes in his game and he he was like i've got to go and work on that and it wasn't it wasn't just five days before the event when he won in 2015 it was years yeah you know i remember him telling me he said he hadn't been home in three months yeah. Because he would just go from one event straight to the next. Just to work, yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, look, have a breather, mate. <laughs> I, I do I do think that's one thing in surfing that doesn't translate that well unless you're you're physically there, which is the performance gap between the levels of pro junior QS and CT. I mean, I remember being an, like an asshole kid watching webcasts before I went on tour and thinking, so-and-so sucks. Yeah. You know, because they're not this person. And then I remember going on tour and that same so-and-so is like the best surfer I've ever seen in my entire life, no comparison. Mm-hmm. And it's the speed and the power and the ability at the CT level. I, I don't think I don't think anything in surfing does it justice unless you're just there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like anything. Um, you know, you people watch NFL or rugby league or, or soccer on TV. And it's, they just start picking out things. <laughs> and it's like, they're like writing people off, like people going to stadiums and booing people. It's just like, you don't even know what this guy's gone through to get here. Mm. Sure, he's having an off day. What do you do? You're you're an accountant or something. I'm sure you miss some numbers, you idiot. Like, <laughs> it's sure. just, people have off days. and But sports people get so scrutinized because they're, in the spotlight and um yeah it's it's 
it's it's hard, but you've just got to learn to deal with it, and you've got to go. Okay, well, this is what I'm doing, and and this and that. Like, how many times I read, oh, you've got to change this, or you got to do airs and this and that, and I'm like, man, I'm already doing this. Mm. Just no one sees it. Sure, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you mentioned 2006. I want to talk about world titles. You mentioned 2006 was the year mentally you felt like you were ready to go, but. In 2004, you suffered the really, really gnarly hamstring injury, which to this day makes me cringe watching that wave. Um, was that a turning point for you in terms of how you approach fitness? Um, and did that kind of feed into the psychological strength of 2006 when you felt like, I I'm ready to go after a world title? Yeah, 100%. Um, before, before that, obviously, you do a little bit of work, but, you know, no one was knowingly going to the gym or no one was really you know i did i did yoga just to keep my scoliosis intact yeah. um and it wasn't until like even nutrition i would eat the worst food it was horrible you know um but it was just like once i had that injury and i i got to meet um jan carton who ended up being my my trainer for a long time she taught me about food she taught me about why the body does this and and this and that and it was incredible to to just learn about myself mm. um and you know i had a, a couple of months where I, leading up to the first event of the year where i got to put that all in practice and feel the difference of doing it versus not doing it this is the 2005 year yeah you know coming back and um and when i didn't do it i didn't feel right so that's why i just kept doing it yeah um and then people were like oh he's doing really good <laughs> like <laughs> we're gonna have to step up our game and <clears throat> you know taj was pretty much the first person that brought a trainer on tour and um you know we had I think we had Griggsy at the time and Griggsy would, you know, implement, you know, yoga or if we wanted to train like this and that, like just trying to put all these different pieces of the puzzles together. But no one really knew, you know, when I first got on tour, it was like, you didn't have swell forecasts and it was like, it was back when you got to have a whole day off if you skip round two and it was all right, I won my first heat. I'm going out tonight. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> Whenever the contest is on again, it's like it was just a, it was a really fun party tour. Yeah. Um, and and then yeah, for to have the injury for me it was like I totally totally blew so many opportunities where if I was sharp, I probably could have won and right. and done better. And I, I remember watching one uh, an old replay in France and surfing against Wilsey and I lost by the smidgenous but I was so off because I'd you know a few days before I'd had a few beers and just, just blew it yeah and I was I was I remember this guilt and I was like that is never happening again and um yeah I was like I've got to work before I play now and you know even then I was still learning you know the consistency side of it but I felt stronger. I felt more, more complete physically, which gave me confidence mentally to go and attack waves like Chopu or Cloudbreak or 
you know, have the distance to go a full day at J-Bay or something. So that was, that was a big, big, it was a really big turning point in my career. You mentioned feeling mentally ready to attack a world title in 2006. You won your first one in 07. I think what goes somewhat underappreciated at that era was that was a really daunting era of of world champs you know you had andy won three in a row you mentioned mm-hmm. him earlier oh two oh three oh four kelly won oh five oh six and and those two titans were really at the height of their powers in that space what was kind of different for you in oh six oh seven specifically oh seven that you felt like no i'm i'm in the mix was there a turning point or performance that you remember yeah it um it, uh, yeah, like as you said, like Kelly and Andy were so gnarly and, um, you know, it was sort of like we would rock up and like, all right, we're fighting for third, <laughs> you know, that, that's that's what it was like. And and the guys that you're talking about fighting for third are, you know, everyone from Taj, Luke Egan, Oki, CJ. Yeah, so gnarly. Uh, Parker, <laughs> like it was so gnarly. Like the top 10 was like even just the bust in the top 10, it was like, wow, that was a bloody good year. Um, not that it's not today, but it was just so gnarly back then. Um, and it was through 2006, um, it was when the, the search event and at Mexico it was just absolutely flawless. I went, I hadn't had a great year up until that point. Um, you know, I had a couple of results here and there, but nothing, nothing to go. Yeah, this is my year. And I had a heat against Chris Ward, and I just looked at it, and you know, I I came in thinking that I'd won, and and then I looked at the footage, and I just went, "You got to step up your game again, mate." And and so I I was uh, I went away, and the next event was J Bay, but. I went and just had some time off for a minute and I was reading a book by Kostya Zoo at the time and he was like, you've got to keep working. Like even when you feel like you're at, at that point, you've got to keep working. And I was like, all right, this is what we're going to do. And um, next event, J-Bay, it was like, all right, let's let's see what we can do here. Let's add it all together. And I worked really hard in that event uh ended up winning that event and then from then on all the way to um to the end of the year i didn't do any worse than a, a quarter mm-hmm. um and made and i think it was two more finals so to me i was like that consistency's there now i'm ready to yeah yeah challenge for a world title they talk about that momentum a lot of a lot of world champs talk about the momentum to win a world title starts like kind of the end of the year prior in a lot of ways yeah definitely definitely it's i think it's it's almost the build-up of even it could even be a year you know or two um and yeah that that for me was a a a big stepping stone i remember i'd I went from like my years on tour, I went from fifth to fourth, injured third, and then that in 2006 got third again. I was like, well, if I'm reading these numbers right, I'm just going to skip second and just go to first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I had a gap year. I'm yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
yeah, so that was that was my thinking in my head, and um, yeah, it was something in me just just switched. I went, I've got the confidence to be consistent now, so let's go. And you're 25, you're 26 in 2007, and and you had an amazing year. You actually you wrapped it up pretty early in Brazil. Yeah, but in saying that, it was it was a, a crazy crazy year. Like Taj and I were. Like people, I think Taj gets left out of that conversation a lot because Kelly was such a big presence. But Taj, Taj was the first one that year to win two events. Um, he was he was right there. Yeah. Um, you know, if he if he beat um, Bobby Martinez in the final at Mandaka, yeah, he would have been like way closer to me. Like, come come brazil it would have been way harder to win um and people don't realize that like it was it was so close be between us and then yeah just sure enough happened the way it did in brazil but um yeah it could have gone a whole lot of different if taj had won it in mandaka you got him back for the the 2001 win at snapper the five star finally <laughs> <laughs> what what I, I obviously is emotional and it, and Sean continues to be a thread throughout a lot of these moments in your life. And I remember you speaking specifically about it during that final or in, during that heat in Brazil. Um, you know, can you talk us a little bit through that? And I guess just generally you'd been through I mean, 26, you'd been through so much already at that point, just, you know, ups and downs in life um, to win a world title that young, what did you feel in the moment and if you look back on it what did you think it what do you think it means you know in your career um yeah look it, there's a lot of questions yeah there. a lot of questions where do you want me to start um <laughs> yeah i guess i guess you know back to the sean thing um you know on that final day there there were dolphins you know going through the lineup and and to be real honest i didn't think it was sean or anything at the time it was like um it was around that time when emails were getting sent around about the um, dolphins in Japan getting slaughtered and stuff like that. And so I just followed that on. I thought that there was just the dolphins coming to say, um, thanks, you know. <laughs> and so it wasn't like a, 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 a thing where I was like, all right, that's him. This is the day. I remember driving up to the beach that day going and looked at the conditions. I went, I'm on today. That it, this is going to happen today, but it wasn't until after the after the semi, um, JD came up to me. He was filming at the time, and he he's like, "I've got to sit you down for a second. I'm like, "Okay," uh, and he goes, "As soon as you won, like the dolphins were only," he said, "The dolphins were only in my heat, and as soon as you won, they disappeared." He's like. I think that was your brother. And I was like, and I think someone overheard it and then it just started. Turned just, into it. Yeah, it just turned into this huge thing. I was like, oh, fucking might as well just run with it now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but at the at the time, I just thought it was the Dolphins coming to say thanks for helping uh, Japan, family yeah. out. Yeah, you know, um, in my weird brain. But And then, yeah, like to win a world title, yeah, sure, I'd been – through so many ups and downs at that point, but winning 
I didn't realize the pressure that comes, personal pressure that comes with being a world champion. And I was exhausted at the end of 2007. I was like, but then starting in 2008, I was, you get pressure from everywhere. Yeah. And as mentally strong and as mentally prepared as you can be, you can't block a lot of this out and it comes in and just starts, you start this internal chatter and all of a sudden this weight just bears down on you and it feels like you can't surf. I remember Andy, I always, I'd quote this a lot and he said, he said something back in the day and he said, everyone in the world wants you to win your first world title. And the second you win, they want you to lose. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Everyone loves the underdog story. Sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he, I remember talking to Andy when he was going into his second and third world titles and, he, and he's like, I just feel like it's so personal that everyone hates me. And I'm like, I don't think they hate you. I think they just want to beat you. Sure. But it's the same thing. Like during 2007, you'd be running out for your heats and everyone's cheering, go, go, go. 2008, it's dead silent. You're like, Thanks, guys. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's and it's something that you see a lot, like in surfing on the men's and the women's side. You know, there's some people that, you know, sometimes there is just a huge talent shift. You know, like mm -hmm. with a Steph Gilmore, where she was just so good for so long, even if the pressure ramped up, she could kind of keep it going. But man, I, I mean, even <laughs> you would get annoying emails from me every event, and be like, "I know you're trying to prepare, but." You have to do this press conference and Kelly's going to be on the panel and it's going to take an hour and everyone's going to ask Kelly questions and you're going to sit there as the world champ and it's going to suck. Yeah, look, it it happened it, when he would show up. Uh. Yeah, well, but then that was the other, yeah, I, we'll, we'll digress into that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was just, that's what you've got to do. You you have a responsibility to when you um, become a champion. It It's like, all right. You got to go and do these things as much as it sucks sometimes, just suck it up, go do it. And you know, then you don't have to worry about it. It's it's clutter that you don't have to deal with as you go through the event. So that was my look at it all. Um, look, even today, like you know, Kelly's still stealing headlines from world champions, you know, just with his one way of a backdoor, you know, sure. Um, but but. That's just the aura of him. Mm. Um, and that will always happen until he, you know, I'm sure if he ever retires, he's going to come into an event with his walking frame and people are just going to gravitate to him. Kelly, Kelly, Kelly. <laughs> and it's like the, the whoever's the world champion at the time, um, I'm here. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, pr it's just probably just is. be like an act at that point too. Like <laughs> Willy Wonka, he'll just do like a forward roll and put a jersey on and go get a tent at back door or something. Like Yoda, right? That's right. Yeah. The, the, um, you know, I think when you look at a lot of other multi-world title winning champs in our sport, we talked about there was a, there's a lot of like back to back to back, but you you have a pretty big range in terms of being the world's best surfer. You know, um, one in 07, one in 09, one in 13. Surfing in terms of a high performance art evolves a lot, you know, year to year. Um, and was that something that you had to take in through those years to to kind of reinvent yourself or to play with equipment. I know you have a great relationship with Darren Hanley and have had for, for decades. 
But was that something you went into each year thinking like, I need to step it up, I need to step it up, these are the lessons I've learned? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Every year you would, you know, you'd sit down at the end of a year and you'd go through, okay, this worked really well. This is where I think surfing's going. Um, take that with you, but then you're going to have to work on this side of things where all right, I've got to work on aerials. I've got to work on being stronger, faster, chew uh, riding. Like you've always got to keep turning the notch up. And um, some people don't see it, but like even going in and seeing DH, like there were years where he was just struggling with boards. You know, you talk to shapers about how they go through hot streaks, you know, and everyone's on their boards. And then all of a sudden it just slowly declines. Um, and, you know, that happened with me and DH. Even as good as our relationship was, it did happen. Mm. Um, you know, and I would, we would, try the boards and and this and that and you know just trying to keep you at a, a level um and through those through the um like anywhere from 02 up to you know 2011 things were inconsistent you know on that side of but there were also two with the new spark of guys like Geordie, Dane, yeah. Gabe, you know, you're looking at these things going, I've got I'm I've got to step up my game and just go straight to that. And you totally forget where your bread and butter is. And your foundation. Yeah. And I think people get hoodwinked in that sense. And and yeah, there there was a turning point for me, especially from 2012 onwards, where I was like I know what I'm really good at. Now it's just adding little things where I can mm. or, you know, just sharpening the tools that I already have. And it, um, and I think that's where, you know, from 2012 until the end of my career where my consistency came from was like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Make sure that you've got your foundations, trust that, and then when you are confident, start adding new things. The decision, so you, so you win your third title in 2013. Knowing you, you approach 2014 with I'm winning a world title and 2015 with I'm winning a world title and 2015 was a crazy year for a lot of reasons and you came very, very close at the end. The decision to step away from full-time competition, when, when was that seed planted for you and how did you kind of process that between when you first started thinking about it and when you, when you made the decision? Yeah, look, it it slowly started creeping in. Um, to be real honest, the first time I actually thought about it was 2011. I was just like, I just had the shittest year, and I was just like, I'm over it. Mm. Um, done. And I went home and I locked my boards up in my garage and I gave myself like three weeks of not even looking at them. And then and then it was like, hang on, nah, I'm missing something here. But it slowly, realistically, started coming in oh maybe 2013 yeah right yeah i remember during your world title yeah, yeah. i remember talking to um phil my coach at jbag going i'm here now but i don't know how long 
I'm going to be here for. Mm. And he was like, all right, well, just be here now. <laughs> good, <laughs> and, good coach. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so we, you know, it, it, was, it started coming through. And, um, yeah, I think 2015, I was slowly starting to, you know, shape my world into um, – into all right, let's start preparing for what's next. Right, um, and even before J Bay that year, yeah, and um, it was yeah. Look, even that year, I was, I was totally committed. Like I, I, I thought in my head I was going to do two more years and I'd be done. Yeah, um, and with the events that happened in 2015, I got to the end of the year and I was just, I was. It wasn't that I was done with events. It was more I just had no energy. I was – the barrel was dead empty. I had no – I couldn't give to myself, therefore I couldn't give to anyone else. Sure. I, you know, I just lay in bed and I just – I didn't even feel like getting up. Like I, I, yeah. it felt like a, I guess I've never been someone that gets – crazy dark depressed but there were it was the first time that i was just like this could be exactly what that feels like you just don't want to get up you don't want to see the world you don't want to do anything i just i just didn't have the energy to face it i didn't have the energy to even go down the street and get a coffee and have someone just go um you know sorry about this or sorry about that because i didn't i didn't have the energy to keep up my wall yeah, and then also just everything would have just fallen apart on the street. It would have been fucked. Well, well, I mean, I think that's something that because it is such a dream life, um, ob- objectively, but certainly from the outside, from an outsider's perspective, of like, wow, look at these guys and girls. They they travel to exotic locations and they mix with beautiful people and they're famous, but maybe not too famous. And they get paid to do something that's so fun. Like we say this a lot, like what do pro surfers do on their day off? Well, they go surfing. Like Mm. other sports, they don't do that, you know? And so, but I I think that does mask the level of commitment and sacrifice that goes into competing at a high level and traveling internationally. In 2015, from an outsider's perspective for you, beyond the shark attack and, you know, with relationships and, and your brother's passing and getting so close to winning a fourth world title, I, I can't imagine how you could get up in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was it was exhausting. But a lot of those things sort of fueled me to keep going. Right. You know, um, and, you know, there it was – it would trigger different emotions and stuff like that. And so when I went surfing, like surfing's my healing place at the end of the day. It's mm. it's the place where I go if if things aren't right, I go surfing or I go into the ocean. And so keep going back there was like, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm okay, I'm safe here and and competing was so comfortable for me that even being on tour with all this shit going on, I felt comfortable there. Like going to an event, going into a competitor's area, I was totally comfortable. 
It you becomes know. like its own form of meditation. Yeah. In a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah. It's like walking into your mum's house <laughs> after you moved out. Um, but it, yeah, I just felt comfortable there and it was like, okay, I'm, I'm safe here. But yeah, at the end of that year it was just like, I, I don't know if I can do it. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I can even just show up and compete. Sure. Um, and it was, a, it was a big decision. You know, I, I, I spoke to not only my my f family and friends. Um, I spoke to my sponsors and um, and and even with my even with my sponsors, I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to compete to this point or that point. But it was okay. I'm going to get to this point and. I'll see what happens. Mm. And as, as uh, you know, Bells was sort of like my point to like, all right, just step away for a second because I, I hated going to surf the event in Margaret River. I just hate main break. <laughs> 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 but I was like, I can skip that event and be totally fine. Sure. <laughs> um, and so that was my first first stepping away. And it was it was different. It was to, to make that decision, I won't lie, it was terrifying um to get on the phone and paul speaker was the ceo at the time and i rang him and i was like yeah, what do you think about this or that and he was just like we'll just support you in any way you go and i was like well that felt great you know yeah. and same with my sponsors um they were extremely supportive and it was like all right now i have the confidence to go and just see what happens and and that year even when i left i didn't know if i was coming back for a year or if I was coming back for 10 years sure. or this or that, it was just, just go and live and, and fill up the fun tank again. And, um, I got to a point where it's just learning to be away from the tour was so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so hence the history where we are today. <laughs> the, um, you mentioned like kind of really like a long lead time in terms of working specifically focusing energy on what that looks like post CT career. And when we talk to a lot of people, uh, both people that work on tour and people that compete on tour about how difficult that transition can be because it becomes your life for in some cases, decades of living out of a suitcase and um, your family or the people on the road in a lot of ways. Um, but it sounds like you had a really intentional approach to uh, I'm going to set myself up for it with projects, whether mm -hmm. it's, you know, businesses or, or video assignments or projects with my sponsors. Yeah. Um, look, I, I still, it wasn't that I fell out of love with surfing, just the goalposts were changing. Mm. It was like a world title isn't, isn't my be all and end all anymore. It was, you know, walking off the beach and watching Adriano win. I, I was really happy for him, but I didn't care. I really didn't care. You know, I felt like, and at that point I was just like, maybe it is time to just keep walking, <laughs> keep walking on a little and get on a plane and go home. Um, but it was, you know, you you think as a sportsman, and there were definitely times where that was my whole world. You know, that was my one my mind striving point and the one thing that I really wanted to do. And I don't 
regret that or, you know, I had a great time and I learned a lot about myself and this and that, but it just came to a point where the goalposts just shifted. I'm not on field A anymore. I'm on field B and I'm going to go play this game over here. Right. As it stands today, your your projects, which I mean, some of them are pretty well reported on, Balta Breweries, um, Creatures of Leisure, uh, Mick Fanning Soft Top Boards, which are great. My son loves his. Perfect. Um, we paid full retail. <laughs> I let Mick know. Let let me let me know. I'll I'll sort the lad out. <laughs> um, but I, I mean that that's something that because of your accomplishments and because of the way you've managed you. you your career in a lot of ways, you're, you're afforded these opportunities to do. I mean, how much energy do you put into these projects, you know, week in, week out? Um, look, there's, there's emails and, and, you know, phone calls and text messages that you have to, to deal with. Um, but a lot of the, the people that are in their jobs at these different companies, they're there because they're way better than me at their job. Mm. I'm more of a sounding board. <laughs> so it's like, do you want to try this? I'm like, well, I've seen that happen there. I've seen that happen there. And it's, it's just, you know, being a sounding board through experience, um, you know, to put me in an office for nine hours a day, I'm losing it. I'm just <laughs> like, I'm out. See you in two months. <laughs> um, and as I said, I still – I still love surfing and I still love the the things that I do. So I still have a lot personally that I want to go and achieve in my in my surfing world. Sure. Um, new experiences, new places, um, you know, working with different crew. Um, and and to me now creating a a project that will stand the test of time that's my new world title that's my goal yeah right. where people can go back in 10 15 years time and go that's still relevant today or something like that that's 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 my goal while we're quickly on the topic of business interests I, I, it would be criminal not to mention your mom liz mm -hmm. um, who has a legendary reputation within the surfing world within the negotiating world and and uh, I, I would just argue sort of just as a mom in terms of her relationship to you can you explain a little bit about who your mom is and what makes her so special yeah she's she's a legend um she's she's a hundred percent honest <laughs> sometimes it's great sometimes it's bad but um yeah she Obviously, she's my mom. She's incredible in that in that realm. But um, you know, going through my career got to a point where I didn't I didn't know what I was doing, and um, and sh she was she was so. Her, I remember going to her one day, and I'm like, "Mom, what do you think that I'll get a manager?" And she was a nurse at the time, and. She looked at me and she goes, are you stupid? And I'm like, I don't think so. Other people might beg to differ. But um, she's like, you're smart enough to look after yourself. You don't have to give someone else your money for things that you can do. And I'm like, well, I don't exactly know what I'm doing. She's like, I'll help you and I'll teach you how to do these things. And, and from that point on, she was – um 
sort of took on the manager role, but it wasn't like a manager where they do everything for you, you know, book flights and that. I still had to do all that stuff. I still had to talk to the sponsors. I still had to sit in negotiating meetings and, um, you know, talk about my projects, why I should be still sponsored and, and this and that. And she would be there and, and she would back me up. If they weren't listening to me, that's when she would come in. <laughs> and uh, He punched a shark. You give him some more stickers. Yeah, no, nah, I wasn't. By that time, we were, we were fine. We were yeah. fine. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, just in the younger years, she, you know, I would explain to her what I was feeling and then, you know, she would listen to the whoever we were dealing with at the time and listen to there. And she would create, she would almost be a mediator in a sense. Um, and so it, it taught me a lot. It taught me how to manage my business, how to manage, um, you know, people's expectations of what they want and what they should get and this and that. Um, but also, yeah, she, she helped me out tremendously with finances and stuff like that and helped me steer money in the right direction so I didn't go and spend it on chocolate. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good mom job for yeah. sure. This is coming out just ahead of the start of the 2020 season. Um, you're in the middle of rehabilitation, as we talked about in the upfront. What are some of your performance goals um, once you're back up to 100%? Are we going to see you get a wild card back onto the CT? And uh, is there still is there still gas left in that tank for you? Um, it's funny. Like I've thought about it here and there, and you know, people asked me to come and do events, and um, you know, I, there were times. You know, Rip Curl asked me to come and surf at Bells last year and I was like, yes, no, yes, no. And it just kept going back and forth and it it, it always ended up on no. <laughs> and then um, I remember ringing Neil Ridgway and I was like, um, just to let you know, I'm out. And he goes, yeah, I made that decision for you weeks ago. We've already given away the wild card. I was like, perfect. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, you know, there's, there's places I'd love to go back to and 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 compete or whatever. But I would have to weigh it up in my in my own head. Is it is it being a selfish point, mm. or is it actually I'm going to go there and you know make a difference in the event or something like that? It wasn't like. I have to do it because my ego needs it. It's right. like I'll go and do it and just enjoy it. That makes sense, I guess, based on what you talked about before. It doesn't feel like there's any "quote unquote" unfinished business for you, performance-wise. No, no. Um, you know, to be able to to be able to go and surf somewhere like J Bay with one other person out, pff, <laughs> anyone would do that. But in saying that, I can go and go to these places and and surf them, you know, there might be a handful of people out, but I'd probably enjoy that more. I, I, I'm still really undecided on where it is. Um, with my knee, you know, I can totally rule out, um, you know, my. I don't think my performance level would be up to somewhere like Bells at the moment. Mm. Um, but, you know, another six months down the track, 
who knows? Sure. I could be just fat and old and <laughs> I can't even get up on my board. So I don't know. Until I, I surf again, I still until I start moving that direction, I, I can't answer it. Do you still watch events? Love it. I love it. I it's such a I have so much more fun watching the events these days than when I was competing because I don't have this sense of anxiety of like you gotta look at all this sort of stuff and all right, you gotta go and do it. And, you know, you're timing your meals so you're not too full when you paddle out. I can sit there and I'm just a big pig on the couch, just <laughs> being the biggest couch critic. And um, But I, I, I try and watch as much as I possibly can. And, um, yeah, I, I, I love watching. I'm I'm biggest fan. What are your uh, predictions for the 2020 season? <sighs> yeah, look, it's, it's going to be um, – it's going to be wild. I, I think – I think Gabe is going to have a real bee in his bonnet. I mean, I love Gabe. But I think he, out of all the people I ever competed against, gnarliest, gnarliest competitor. Um, and he, you put Kelly, Andy, Taj in that list, and it's still Gabe. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think Joel. right behind him would probably be Andy when Andy was so on fire. Mm. He was, you know, so untouchable and kelly kelly too is probably for me um they they all brought a different thing but gabe's whole package is just ridiculously ruthless um not in ruthless like he's mean it's ruthless in the sense that he will not give anyone an inch in any type of conditions it's he's incredible um in saying that <laughs> Um, you know, I think he's going to have a lot to prove this year, you know, coming so close and, you know, he had a couple of, you know, the hiccup in Portugal. I think that was one that he's going to have to deal with for a bit, but, um, he's been a slow starter a few seasons too. I wonder if, I wonder if getting that close last year is going to focus him in from the, from the jump. Yeah. It could do anything. Yeah. You know, the bridesmaid effect can, can either fully just kill your confidence mm. or, it can keep you rising. Right. Um, Italo is going to be phenomenal. I think what – I don't think people actually realized how good he was in 2019. You know, you have a look at his results and I was like – I didn't even realize it myself until I actually went through. I was went, holy shit, he made five finals. Yeah. You know, that, that is huge. And to win three, like – in this day and age, like when was the last time that someone went on and made five finals and won three events in this day and age of surfing? Well, and I think like it's a good point. And, and I think like that's kind of, I'm not like a ASP WSL apologist, although I get framed that way sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, I, there's a lot that can be improved with competitive surfing. But I do think it's like at the end of the day, and I, I talk about this a bit, like, you're just creating conditions for something magical to happen. Oh, 100%. And, and someone like Italo, I remember when he qualified and it was like my job to kind of be aware of what's happening in surfing. And I, I kind of knew about him, but it was most of the mentality in the Western world was like, oh, it's another Brazilian. Mm. And it's like he turned into this. And he was always amazing, but he just turned into this amazing story. And I just think that's, that's just such a cool thing. Yeah. I remember when I first saw him, I was – I was next to Jadson on the beach and we'd, I think we were just walking around and I, was, I saw him on a way and I was like, how's this kid? And he's like, 
he's going to be crazy. And I'm like, all right. If you say so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, and then got to know him and, and, you know, watch his vibe and his aura around the events. And just in the last two years, his confidence in himself has grown a lot. Yeah. Um, And then his surfing's just, it speaks for itself. It's incredible. Um, I think he benefited from a, a, a very special handoff with you at your last event in the final. Yeah, well, that was a big thing for me too, like to see how much he wanted that and see how much it meant to him. That was a big point for me to go, yeah, I'm not up to this level anymore. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was it was truly, truly special to be in that with him and, you know, to, to think that was 2018, that was his first ever win. Yeah. 2019, he's world champion. Yeah. Like that's, that's a – even in 2000. 18 he did you win two or three events well i I mean that's kind of what we talk about where it's like the title campaign starts the year before Mm. in a lot of ways and i I don't think you can replicate like not that it was a handoff but there's a little bit of a juju absorption like he it's your last event you're on fire he's on fire and it's just this energy transfer for someone yeah i think when you when you break through and win that event win an event is it's, a whole different thing. Sure. You have a, a whole different mindset. You have a confidence that I can do it because I've done it before. Yeah. Once you get over that hump, it's it changes. So I, I'm not stealing any credit from him. He's <laughs> <laughs> incredible. Well, but, and you know, it's the, the era of kind of possibility for a lot of people too that I think Gabe had a big part in ushering in because you talked about it before, how that top 10 was like a foregone conclusion for forever Mm. you know it was like the quarters was always going to be like kelly andy mick hobgoods bobby you know like for for a long time and then when gay won the world title you start having guys like wilco winning events Mm -hmm. and like i think it just kind of broke the ceiling on on this next generation in a lot of ways what about the australians on tour right now on the men's side we'll get to the women in a second um yeah look i i guess the season that jack had towards the end of the year i think he made like Four, three or four quarters in a row. Right. You know, that's that's a huge confidence for Jack, um, especially when he he was really, really erratic yeah. in his first couple of years. So um, to have that, that's, that's going to be huge, huge for him. I think he's going to take that confidence on. Jules, um, you know, I, th- I think he was someone that everyone wants him to win a world title and he has the talent to. It's just believing in himself but i think he put so much into the year before and came up just short sure. i think as i said that's the bridesmaid effect yeah it can it can drain you or you know lose your confidence a bit um or it can just fire up again and i think he sort of i think he was just a little exhausted and you know i think he'll, he'll step back up and i feel like the surfing that owen did Throughout the year this year, there's a big confidence booster for him. Totally. Um, I haven't seen him surf that good since when he was rivaling Kelly for the, the title. 10, 11. Yeah. 10 time, yeah. Um, and then Ryan Callanan is a kid that I, I absolutely love. He's just love everything about him. So spontaneous and so um, generous and awesome on the beach as well he's just a, a great human all around i'd love to see him do well so you know we we have some good kids coming through and then the, the new the new people um conor o'leary back on tour um young morgan Sibilic, um 
you know, there's there's some really good. Ethan's fair, back on tour. Ethan, I mean, yeah. it's, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think there was a little bit of a waning after you and Joel kind of stepped away and Taj stepped away. And now it feels like it's being built back up. But it's a different world with the Brazilians than it was when you guys were on tour. It is. And it's, it's, it's going to go through ebbs and flows, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, if you – Brazil is extremely strong on the back of Gabe, Italo, and Philippe. Yeah. Three of the most exciting – surfers in the world yeah um so yeah it's going to push people but then there's going to be these there's going to be a set of kids from elsewhere that just go fuck it we're going to try and take them out yeah you know it happens so um it's it's going to be it's i think it's going to be exciting um and then last but not definitely not least is getting john john back fit and healthy um you know we saw what he did at the start of 2019 um, I felt like he was going to be on this untouchable run. Um, you know, my dream is to see Gabe, John and Idolo all just fight it out. And so they're all just going neck and neck all the way to the end. You, you know? got to put an Australian in there too. I'll, yeah, I'll throw him. My, my boys know I've got them. I just don't <laughs> want to put the pressure on them. I'm, okay. I'm always it's a, there it's for It's a strategic them. answer. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Just, just for the media fans. <laughs> and, and on the women's side. Um, I mean, you got Tyler coming back. You've got Steph um, circling in eighth. You got Carissa stepping away for the year, mm -hmm. and just uh, that—the level of performance on the women's side is so high. Yeah, I can't wait to see Tyler back. Um, you know, to to come back and make final straight off was incredible. Um, Steph's always incredible. Um, you know, Steph's one that if she's hungry, watch out. Mm. Um, it's all up to her a lot of the time. Um, so if she yeah, if she's hungry, put her right in the mix. Um, Carolyn Marks, she's growing and learning each and every day, and um, and Lakey Peterson as well. I think Lakey's had two incredible years where it's just totally come undone in one heat at the last event where she's in the race every single time, yeah. if not leading the race going into those. Yeah. And um, I think she she will have some she'll have something to prove too. Spends a good chunk of her time down at Bell's Beach too, which can't hurt. No, can't hurt. <laughs> All right, before we go, we've got the lightning round, but we're going to call it the white lightning round. Oh, God. For Mick. Sound effects, faucet. Good. That was great. <laughs> we're going yeah. some sound effects. Okay, so we've got 10 questions. You answer them as quickly as you can. Mm -hmm. One board set up for the rest of your life, single fin, twin fin, thruster, quad, bonzer, or finless? Uh, thruster. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Burrito or pizza? Burrito. Last book you read? Uh, could be a while. <laughs> oh, shit. I forget. Yep, totally forget. Best surf film ever? Uh, Momentum 2. One wave you never have to go back to? Main break, Margaret River. <laughs> Only get to surf one wave for the rest of your life? Home. Which part? Mm, well you can catch one all the way down <laughs> no um <laughs> yeah if if i could have six foot kira every day for the rest of my life i'm 100 percent fine this is a bonus question for me two foot snapper or three foot d-ball three foot d-ball oh, amen best person to share a lineup with um <laughs> mm, this could be a while um 
I'm going to say Tyler Knox. Worst person to share a lineup with. Um, Dingo back in 2004. <laughs> <laughs> All right, last one. Finish the sentence. I will next achieve a state of happiness by... I will next achieve a state of happiness by going and doing a pee because I'm really busting. <laughs> <laughs> Mick Fanning, thank you for coming on the lineup. Thanks, Dave. So that's it. That's the thrilling conclusion to our conversation with Mick Fanning. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a strange time at the moment, but I encourage you to stay informed, stay calm, and help one another out. We'll all get through this. And if you haven't listened to our other pods yet, please download, listen, rate, and subscribe if you like them. They're available wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next Tuesday with whatever we've figured out. I hope you get some waves wherever you're at, and we'll see you then.